0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. In the depths of the Depression nearly 100 years ago, a remarkable thing happened in Chatham, Ontario. A baseball team comprised solely of black players won the provincial championship. In the process, more than a decade before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, they did what might have once seemed impossible. Heidi L.M. Jacobs documents that story in her new book. It's called 1934, The Chatham Colored All-Stars Barrier-Breaking Year. And she is with us here in the studio. And we are also joined on the line from Chatham, Ontario, by Deirdre McCorkendale. She's a board member of the Chatham-Kent Black Historical Society and an assistant professor of history at the University of Guelph. And she worked on the 1934 Research Project as a student. And we are delighted to have you two here on our program tonight. Heidi, Deirdre, great to have you here. Heidi, start us off. How did this story how did you discover it in the first place?
1: Well, I always say this story sort of fell into my lap. Um, a colleague of mine at the University of Windsor in the history department um, called me and said, I met this, this lady at an event in Chatham and she was wondering if we could help her make a website about her father-in-law who, who was a baseball player and a hockey player and part of this black baseball team that I had never heard of. So I instantly wrote back and said, absolutely. And at the time, we thought we would finish this up in three or four months, but it's been um, seven or eight years right now. So this story really kind of fell in my lap. And I, you know, the minute I saw these scrapbooks that Pat Harding had had, I was just hooked.
0: And we should establish that you're a big baseball person, right? We had you on the program a couple of years ago because you and your husband went to... Some ridiculous number of ballparks and some ridiculous number of consecutive <laughs> yeah, days.
1: Yeah, 50, 50 baseball games in one summer in a 100-mile radius. So, <laughs> there yeah. we go. That yeah. was it.
0: That was it. Now, why was 1934 such an important year for all of this? Well,
1: 1934 is an interesting year. It was in the middle of the Depression. Um, and the All-Stars uh, had a number of players who were on the team um, from the neighborhood of the east end of Chatham. So the players always say we had a lot of st- spare time because there wasn't a lot of work to be had. So the team had a big momentum, I think partially because of the economic climate, but also because the the team played in the center of the community in the east end of Chatham at a place called Sterling Park, which was a social and cultural center of the community. And all the neighborhood would come out in the evenings to watch the team but um and, and social was named after archie sterling who was a local businessman in the neighborhood and white a, guy. a white man yep mm-hmm. and he was a future mayor of of chatham
0: too there we go well let's talk chatham Deirdre. maybe you can help us with um some of the demographics of chatham the population the black population of chatham uh nearly a hundred years ago from this time that we're talking about
2: Okay, so that's a big question. Uh, So the very first Black presence, because we should talk about this, uh, Chatham's kind of known as being a... Terminus on the Underground Railroad, and I promise I will get to that point, but before it was a Terminus on the Underground Railroad, the very first Black person that we have recorded in Chatham was an enslaved man. Now, unfortunately, I can't tell you much about him uh, besides his name, Frank, uh, but I always like to start the story of Chatham with him because the story of Chatham's Black community is a story of activism, but that shadow of slavery is still very much so a part of it. So, Black folks start really moving into uh, the Kent County area. So we're talking about, for the major cities, we're talking about Chatham, uh, Dresden, North Buxton, and then all of the kind of rural areas in between. They start coming in um, after the passage of um, the uh, Act to Limit Slavery in Upper Canada, and they especially start coming in the 1830s. But when we see the biggest numbers of Black folks coming into Chatham is in the 1850s, when the uh, United States passes the uh, Fugitive Slave Act. Um, Because with the passage of that act, it made for enslaved people living in America who may have fled to places like Ohio or New York, it made living there much, much more dangerous. So we see a bigger, bigger exodus. So that's when the population starts to really grow in Chatham. And by the like mid-1850s, one-third of Chatham's population was Black. And while many uh, Black folks would leave the Chatham area after Um, when the Civil War starts because they went to go fight in the Civil War and to also help with the uh, reconstruction efforts down south. Many people stayed and also many people also just came across the border. We have in Chatham very important connections with people in Windsor, but also people in the Michigan region, and people go back and forth across the border all the time. And that's actually reflected in some of the things that Heidi talks about um, in the book. And so it maintained that population well into uh, the 30s. We kind of freeze the Black population in Chatham at that 1850s marker of the Underground Railroad. Uh, but that community stayed um, pretty vibrant for quite some time.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the black ball players who were, you know, fantastic athletes at the time and of course prohibited, uh, not by law, but by bad custom from playing in Major League Mm -hmm. Baseball at the time. This is Boomer Harding and he's a member of the All-Stars and there he is. Uh, Heidi, go ahead, describe him if you would and tell us a bit about him.
1: Well, Boomer Harding is, to me, he's sort of the key to this project because it was through um, Boomer's daughter-in-law, Pat, who created the scrapbooks documenting his life. So he was one of the youngest players, if not I think the youngest player on the team, and a couple of his brothers also played on the the team as well. Mm -hmm. But Boomer went on to be a hockey player. He was on the farm team for the Detroit Red Wings. He was a track and field athlete in high school. He played any sport that would have him. He played sports for his whole life up until horseshoes in his later years. So he was a a really powerful athlete and a real competitor. He was also the first black man to be a postman in in, um, Chatham as well. So he broke a lot of barriers in a number
0: of ways. And how did the whole All-Stars team come together in the first place as well?
1: Well, they were a neighbourhood team. Um, the All-Stars, I think a lot of times people think the All-Stars came out of nowhere, but there were black baseball teams um, as early possibly as the 18, 1880s and 1890s. But a number of the coaches in the on the All-Stars played for a team called the Chatham Giants in the 1920s. And there was record of black baseball in the region that goes back to you know 1905 as as well so they didn't come out of nowhere there was a a strong tradition so the players were playing you know as i mentioned the east end was a really vibrant community place and they were coming together and then archie sterling saw these amazing guys playing mostly sort of pickup games and and got them into the
0: league Um, okay deirdre how important was baseball to the region at this time
2: Um, For Chatham, I can't stress how important baseball was. I mean, sports in general was because it was a way for the community to come together and have fun. Baseball, very famously, is kind of a sport that you don't typically need a lot of money for. Um, And it was a way that everybody could spend time together and have fun with each other. Um, and it was also a way um, for them to kind of showcase their athletic abilities um, as well. So those games, the professional games are really important because they kind of are able to show people outside of the community, the vibrancy of the community when they go to like away games and things like that. But. Even within the community, it's a kind of tremendous support network that gets formed around these baseball players and these games and other people start forming their own teams and things like that. So um, it's it's just really, really important for the community and community building itself.
0: And let me do a little follow-up, a little personal follow-up with you if I can, because you're obviously way too young to have remembered any of this, but your grandmother... Your grandmother was born a few years after the All-Stars were in their prime, and I gather they did have an effect on her generation. Talk about that, if you would.
2: Uh, they did. Um, she always talked about them and how important the team was. Um, but I think an important thing to talk about is it's, it's not um, the way that she talks about them. It's not so much just that they played ball. It's that they were leaders of their community that they were an example in the community that you know people could strive towards and that was something that's taken away she's never really talked to me much about you know, who won and who didn't win at those particular times. But she talks to me about how important those people were and how much they were there for each other. And when you're dealing with um, things, and, you know, she grew up in the 40s, when you're a young kid dealing with institutional racism yourself, to have people like the all-stars there as your role models, um, it's, it's really important. Um, so that's kind of what they... They meant for the community. I mean, it's amazing that they won, too, obviously. It's always great to win. But um, their importance goes beyond just that win. It was what they were doing um, that was important to people. And who they were when they came back
0: was also important. For sure. Let's take, uh, Heidi, let's look at a couple of more pictures. That's a shot of King Terrell. Is that how he says his name? Terrell. Terrell. Terrell, like turtle. Turtle yeah. like turtle, right. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned that in the book, <laughs> yeah. actually. Uh, and Flat Chase, who are these two guys?
1: These two men, I think, are real embodiments of what was great about this team. Flat Chase was a formidable hitter and a fantastic pitcher, um, which is a rare combination. And he was just a charismatic mm-hmm. guy. I, I compiled the stats for his uh, his the 1934 season, and it's about... He was batting about 470, which is pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he was he was a legend. He was sort of larger than life in terms of stuff. They there's a story that everyone says he's got the the record for the longest home run ball in every park he's pit hit in. Um there's a line that says they're still looking for balls that he hit. <laughs> um so he, he was that kind of hero that people have. How do you get a nickname like Slack? Uh, apparently his it's the way he ran. Apparently something about his his feet, or something. So, okay. but it, it stuck. So he's he's flat chase. Um, but uh, King Turrell was to me also in late. He was a very very solid player. Um, he was a left-handed third baseman. He was That's very rare. It is very rare. So he was legendary in that way. But he was also really interesting to me working on this project because he was also uh, a very reflective storyteller. Uh, there was a couple of key interviews that he gave about what it was like to be on this team. And so, and he also really helped, um, you know, as Dorothy, um, Deirdre's grandmother has said, he also helped to um, mentor the next generations in sports and in life. So he was a real crucial person.
0: Let's do another picture here as well. Now. One of the names in this next picture is going to be familiar, although this isn't the guy. Mm-hmm. But this is the guy's dad, Ferguson Jenkins Sr. That's him on the left, Andy Harding and Ross Talbot. Mm-hmm. Okay, Heidi, tell us about these three guys.
1: Well, I think people know who uh, Fergie Jenkins is. I hope they know. I hope they know too. I hope too. they know
0: Fergie, the first ever Canadian inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yes. And a could. phenomenal pitcher back in the day.
1: Yep, and a, a real champion for for Chatham. Um yeah. So, yeah, he's he's legendary, but he's also a, a strong member of this team and played throughout them. Um, Andy Harding was uh, one of the Harding brothers as well. And Ross Talbot was an interesting man too. He uh, was a businessman and a ball player and uh, just one of the, you know, I, I think one of the solid players who contributed to the team overall.
0: Ferguson Jr. obviously got his talent from Fergie Sr.
1: It sure seems that way, doesn't sure it? Sure does, yeah.
0: yep. Says something about nature versus nurture. Yep. (laughs) Okay, Deirdre, they were called the Chatham Coloured All-Stars. Tell us why you think they were marketed in those kinds of racialized terms.
2: Um, Well, I I can't say for sure, but that was the era, and... Um, the naming conventions is something I try to explain to my students on a regular basis that you need to understand when you're studying the history of Afro-Americans and Afro-Canadians that the naming conventions change, uh, quite a bit. And colored, uh, was, um, a terminology that was used, uh, quite often in the thirties. Um, in fact, um, depending on which circle you'd look at, um, up until about the 1960s or 70s, to call somebody Black would have been insulting to some Black folks. Um, It's really with kind of the rise of Black power and a lot of those kind of conventions that we see those kind of tides changing. But color se- Colored seems very kind of dated, antiquated, and also insulting, almost like a slur to maybe us now. But at the time that was a term that was used. And I think that it works because they were embracing um, their heritage. Um, Because as kind of Heidi points out that a lot of times in some of the newspaper coverage, uh, race isn't always mentioned, but it's always present. Um, And I think in a sense, there's a proudness of being black and being from Chatham, but they just probably wouldn't have used the term black at the time, they would have used the right term for themselves. So I think that that is a kind of proud identifier for them,
0: um, if that
2: makes any sense.
0: Sure. Here's uh, how Heidi describes it in the book. Baseball offered the men of color who played on the All-Stars the rare opportunity to exist on the same literal and metaphoric playing field as white men in a space where the rules were the same for both races. In many cases, baseball was an arena to best their white neighbors in front of their friends, family and community in socially sanctioned ways. It provided occasion and opportunity to demand and gain respect both on and off the field. Okay, having said all that, I mean that's wonderful, but having mm-hmm. said all that, these guys undoubtedly faced racism in their day when they were playing baseball mm-hmm. on and off the field. Mm-hmm. What have you heard about how they dealt with all that?
1: That's a tricky thing to to um to locate, and Deirdre and I have talked about this before, sometimes they didn't share an awful lot of those details with their children, and so that record is a little a little scarce, but they mm-hmm. did talk to to each other, and in some of the interviews that we have, talk about what it's like to go to an out-of-town um, ballpark and beat the local team and get run out of town with garden implements chasing them. No kidding. Um, children... Using words we would not use today at the at the players and at the players' wives and girlfriends. Um, so there was some very very difficult things that, that the team endured. I think one of the things that Blake Harding, one of the boomers' son, often says is the team gave as good as they got. So they did not stand for disrespect. And one of the things that the team really believed in was working toward gaining respect and often, like Blake would say, the team would come into a town who had never seen a black baseball team or black people and people would come out to see them as a bit of a a novelty, but slowly seeing the skill of these players, they would earn some respect on the field. And I think that respect started to seep over into the off the field world as well.
0: Well, give us a sense of how they played because there's there's an expression of baseball, you play spikes up, Mm -hmm. meaning when you go slide into second base, your spikes are up so you can inflict damage on the second baseman or shortstop who's there waiting for the throw. Did they play that way?
1: They did, I -hmm. think. And, you know, it's hard to piece together the record because obviously we don't have, you know, footage of this. But Mm -hmm. it it seems that they they often got taken to task for being a bit too rough on the field. But there's enough evidence um, to suggest that one of the things that has happened is when they were being racially targeted, or when things were not fair, they stood up for themselves. And so that the the roughness often has some sort of precursor that we don't know about, but there's enough hints to suggest that they were reacting to something. Sure.
0: Deartree, 1934 was a big year because the All-Stars won the championship that year. Did that earn them the respect that they wanted?
2: Yes and no, Um, on the one hand. Um, It did get the T individual team, I guess, some recognition in the community, but right up until the 50s when we had the finally, finally had the passing of the Fair Accommodations Act in Ontario, we still had segregation in Chatham and other parts of the county Um, and many black folks also still had a hard time, uh, gaining employment. Uh, Heidi has a, I think, very important part of the book where, um, you know, there was a, there was a, I believe it was a banquet that was, was, uh, provided for the all-stars and one of the players said, okay, so give us a chance now. We've won this game. Give us a chance. And... In some ways, it did open doors for some people, and, and I'm not saying that it didn't, but one game doesn't fix um, several hundred years of institutional barriers. Um, I mean, it would be wonderful if it did. Um, so I guess, yeah, the, the answer is yes and no.
0: Right, well, actually, let me follow with you on that, Heidi, because it is, it is a tradition in baseball that when your career is over as a player, Many of them get jobs as managers or general managers or coaches or scouts or, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of things. Did that happen for these guys?
1: Um, they still... St- a number of the players coached local teams, but certainly not any professional, professional way. But they did... Um, a number of them did have jobs that they probably wouldn't have had before. Uh, there's a great interview with Boomer Harding, a man of few words, but someone asked him, did things change after... After you won for players and he said, Yeah, pause. <laughs> slowly it did. Some doors opened. Hmm. But I think that pause in his in his interview, when you actually hear it, I think is really revealing about yes, things did change, but but very
0: slowly, as Deirdre had just mentioned. And what ultimately happened to this all star team?
1: They Many of them stayed lifelong friends. Uh, many of them continued to play on different teams. Uh, a few of them went off to the war. A few of them moved back to Detroit or other regions. But those who stayed in Chatham stayed involved in uh, in sport and played on, on different teams. And as the decades progressed and the years progressed, they became more integrated teams as well. So there were black players on white teams and um, flat chase played for the London Majors, and, you know, so they...
0: county baseball.
1: Yep. So they they did continue to play baseball.
0: Got it. We want to show one more picture here, and all the pictures we've been showing so far have been in black and white. This one's in colour. And this is Sagasta Harding and Don Tabron. And, Heidi, maybe you could tell us the significance of these two.
1: Well, those are the two longest-living players, um, and they were at the Blue Jays' They, the Blue Jays honored the All-Stars at, a, um, I think it must have been a Negro Leagues weekend. And so these two men were the last remaining players, so they were representing the team. And I think this is a really big turning point in the reputation of the team and that, that sense of recognition of, of these two men. They have both since passed, but I think it was a very special moment for all of the families and the descendants to, to see their team on this national scale. Do
0: you remember what year that was? It was in the... No,
1: 2001, was it?
0: 2002, I'm 2000, told.
1: Okay, 2002,
0: yeah? yep. Okay, so more than 20 years ago. Yep. You just used an expression, and we may need to do a little explaining here. Yep. You said the Negro Leagues. Now, that's a word you wouldn't use today, but in no. fact, that's what they were called. It was called the Negro Leagues, which existed yep. simultaneously to Major League Baseball, and there's a museum in Kansas City called the Negro League Museum. Correct, yep. So, we we'll just get that on the record.
1: Yes, absolutely. And yeah. I think that, that term, actually, Deirdre, you're, when you were talking about the, the worst of the use of the word coloured, the Negro League still sort of points to that particular history and we still use that, that phrase in, in baseball
0: history, yep. Deirdre, with this book that has come out and the inclusion of the All-Stars in the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame last year, are you now satisfied that the story of the Chatham-coloured All-Stars has been properly recognised?
2: Mm. Well, I, I I don't think I'm ever going to be satisfied.
0: <laughs> now, why is that? There's,
2: um, <laughs> there's so much more to say. Um, and there's so much more. You're asking a historian um, if the story has been fully told. So the answer is always going to be no. You know, um, what I love about, I think... Heidi's done an excellent job with this book. What I love about her book is a really important part that she includes at her conclusion and her um, final chapter, where she talks about the importance of not just focusing on 1934. This team isn't just important because they won. They're important to the community. She has spent time talking about the families, but also There's a whole other story about what happened after and the community that existed after. So I think this is a good, this is a good amount of the story that we've told, but there's always more.
0: That's a great way to put it. 1934, the Chatham Colored All-Stars Barrier Breaking Year. And we are delighted that it has brought Heidi L.M. Jacobs to our studio and Deirdre McCorkendale on the line from Chatham, Ontario. Thanks you two.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.